From the KGOU studios, I'm Suzette Gorlatt, the Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies. Welcome to Worldviews. Last week, former Brazilian President Lula began a 12-year prison sentence for corruption and bribery. The scandal has deeply divided the country, but Professor Mark Longevin says the situation is not so black and white. To what degree are these gatekeepers and the illegal payments made to them essential for Brazilian democracy? We'll hear from Mark Longevin on today's show. But first, Rebecca Cruz and I discuss the death this week of Winnie Mandela, South Africa's anti-apartheid activist and wife of Nelson Mandela, and a Supreme Court case in India about interfaith marriage. It has to do with something that's been labeled as love jihad, and this comes about because of rising nationalism in India. That's all coming up after the latest news from NPR. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gralat. Rebecca Cruz, both of us are back in the studio this week. It's good to see you. Let's talk about two uh, interesting issues. First of all, sadly, from South Africa, Winnie Mandela has passed away, the anti-apartheid activist and uh, former first lady of South Africa, wife of Nelson Mandela, um, died this week at the age of 81. She was trained as a social worker. She was married to Nelson Mandela for 38 years, but they spent almost 30 of that separated while he was in prison that whole time. And she, too, had been imprisoned uh, for the the anti-apartheid work that she, too, had done. So she had kind of her own legitimacy as an activist, but she also then had some difficulties later in life. Tell us about Winnie Mandela. She's, she's definitely somebody we need to be talking about this week. Well, she's been hailed as the the mother of South Africa, the mother of the country. And the two of them, her and and Nelson Mandela, really became this this couple while he was imprisoned and then her on and off. She was officials were charging her with terrorism and other things, but they became this symbol. And it was incredibly important throughout uh, the 30, 40 years that they were fighting this struggle. And then when he was released in 1990, again, it was so powerful to see them together. I I was quite young at that time, but I remember those images and and it was just so powerful. But she was a very controversial figure. And she kind of parted ways with him in a couple of of pretty significant uh, ways. And a lot of this had to do with her approach. You know, we tend to think of him as being more of the the pacifist nonviolence. And he came to that a little bit later. But she was not necessarily opposed to violence. And there were some some questionable things that happened, some uh, kidnapping charges, some other things that came out against her. And in fact, uh, in the 1990s, in the peace and reconciliation process, she was actually found guilty of human rights abuses. Uh, And so they had mainly to do with her bodyguards who were a a football team uh, that were potentially responsible uh, for kidnapping and murdering a 14-year-old boy. So she kind of got wrapped up into that. She came into politics even after her and Nelson divorced. As you said, they spent much of their married life apart, and one can imagine that that doesn't bode well for a marriage. So they did get divorced uh, in the 1990s after he uh, was let out of prison. Uh, But she was involved in some embezzlement scandal. She was then later cleared of that. All that aside, she continues to hold this very important part uh, in South African history as an activist, as a bit of a feminist leader as well. Uh, If we think about the time period of which she was so vocal, you don't see a lot of of women during that time period, but you saw a lot of women in South Africa, and she was leading the charge there. Her face and her voice certainly was. Well, she was definitely an iconic person and part of an iconic couple. And so uh, we we definitely wanted to recognize her this week. But, uh, you know, the corruption, the other things, I mean, undoubtedly part of the picture, as it is for many. Uh, but but the things that she accomplished and achieved were, complicated, were amazing. Complicated, complicated lives. Complicated. <laughs> 
So let's talk about India, a Supreme Court case that was uh, settled this week, or at least it seems to be kind of an ongoing issue uh, regarding interfaith marriage. It's been going on for about two years, a two-year battle in the courts regarding a, a Hindu woman married to a Muslim man, and she then converted to, to Islam. But this, you know, involved her family uh, suing about these things. I mean, this is this is quite an interesting case that we have in India and reflects some broader social political issues that are going on there. Yeah, the, the woman had been kept from her husband. She's 24 years old, had been kept from her husband for the last year. They were finally reunited. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a love story on, on that level. But it's been very interesting to watch. It's several years in the courts. And it has to do with something that's been labeled as love jihad. And this comes about because of rising nationalism in, in India. And the Nationalist Party, of which the prime minister is a part of, the leader of. And so we're seeing different uh, aspects of this nationalism come about. And there is this idea that the minority Islamic groups in the country are purposefully going after young Hindi women and converting them for marriage in an attempt to somehow overtake uh, the Hindi population. But this is gaining some traction, and the lower courts actually supported the family in this case and said that the 23, 24-year-old woman was not wise enough to be making these decisions and that her father was correct, and so that's why it escalated up into the, the further courts. But this is uh, comes about since uh, 2014 when Prime Minister Modi uh, came into power. We're seeing this, as I said. Uh, we're also seeing an increase in sectarian violence, and this, this nationalism, which we're seeing in India, you know, we, we're seeing this kind of a global trend that we've been talking about on this show, nationalism and concerns and fear about the other. Rebecca, thank you so much, as always, for being here and for giving us these updates. Thank you. Glad to have you back. We want to hear your thoughts about today's discussion. Leave your comments and questions in the Worldview section of KGOU.org. Or follow us on Twitter, at WorldviewsKGOU, and I'm at Suzette Gorlott. Next, I'll talk with Mark Longevin about corruption and democracy in Brazil. The South American country's politics are in turmoil ahead of the country's presidential elections later this year. I'm Suzette Gorlott, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlott, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Despite having been convicted of bribery and corruption, former Brazilian President Lula da Silva vowed to seek a third term in Brazil's 2018 presidential election. The downturn in Brazil's economy generated even more support for the already popular former president, who claims the charges are nothing but a political takedown. Mark Longevin is a professor and consultant who heads George Washington University's Brazil Initiative, and he will help us untangle the country's complicated politics. Mark Longevin, welcome to Worldviews. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here and to talk about one of my favorite subjects, Brazil. Many of our listeners know I spend some time there and that uh, I really love the country. But Brazil is undergoing some challenging times. Um, we also know that the corruption charges against President Lula, for example, former President Lula. But Mark, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the work you're doing or the things that you're paying attention to specifically regarding the political environment? You know, we have to recognize that it's not just Lula. Most of the major political parties, major political figures, including Lula, uh, have had uh, investigations and prosecutions with regarding what some of us would define as the Petrobras procurement kickback scheme, which some people call car wash, lava jato. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of, you know, it involved a lot of um, kickbacks that then were converted into campaign slush funds for politicians that were 
most of them in alliance with Lula as president and later Dilma as president, but not exclusively. There were opposition parties, uh, major opposition parties, uh, who had uh, elected officials caught up in the uh, investigations as well. Now, as far as Lula specifically goes, some have said, at least when I was there, that they really don't feel like his particular case as, was as bad as some of the others, like like Tamers, like Jilmas, that he wasn't as embroiled in this. Would you agree with that? Or what what is the public thinking? It's a great question. And I've been lucky enough in the last 18 months to spend some time with Judge Moro, who uh, was the judge for the original conviction of Lula. And I've spent considerable time and follow-up discussions with Lula's lawyers. So I've tried to look at this uh, case from a couple different ways. And I think that I was surprised that the uh, prosecution chose this particular case to go after the former president because it's a case that is weak on its merits in terms of establishing the facts of a quid pro quo corruption case. Um, And you would think that trying to prosecute a very popular former president, you would need a stronger case so that you could at least eliminate the appearance of politicization. And so now Brazil's split between those that feel that the the prosecution and the judge and the appellate judges that upheld the conviction have been acting as, you know, uh, in a, as a political force rather than a responsible judiciary. And then you've got others who highly disapprove of Lula and the Workers' Party who have not expressed a critical understanding of the judicial process against Lula and some of the other uh, elected officials that have been convicted under the Lava Jato or Car Wash scheme. You mentioned the politicization of these issues and particularly the judiciary. You know, I'm always learning when I'm in Brazil, and I was it was interesting to learn this last time I was there, I met a couple of legislators, and they were making this very comment that the the entire country is just, they, they were just saying this is very Brazilian, you know, the whole entire country, everything is so politicized. And even like social services, I'd love to, to get your thought on this. Social services are so heavily politicized. I mean, when you talk about this kind of car wash scheme and the kickbacks to the um, politicians for their campaigns, that this is also going on through social services that are being provided, let's say in favelas, that in, in Hosinha, one of the biggest and one of the wealthiest, I mean, and, you know, air quotes there, uh, favelas in terms of like its location and the kind of activities going on there, that these services are, are also providing kickbacks to politicians in order to kind of play for votes in these communities. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not the expert, obviously, on this. Can you give us some sense of how that's working and how that's different than maybe here or anywhere else? I think there's a couple uh, facts that we should recognize first that Brazilian elected officials in some of the bigger cities, wealthier states, and certainly in Congress are very well paid, probably the best paid on a per capita income basis of any other democracy around the world, including the United States. So these are, uh, you know, here in Washington, in Washington, D.C., we call them plums, but they're more than plums. These are some of the best jobs that any Brazilian can get. And then aside from that, one has to ask the question, of course, there's going to be a great amount of competition to these elected offices, but they get free radio and TV time. They are prohibited by law of making these large expenditures on high-priced items like concerts and food baskets and other things to call attention to their campaigns. So why do they need all this slush money? And I think that the media, Judge Moro and the uh, um, 
task force, the Lavajat or Car Wash task prosecutorial task force, have not spent enough time looking into this. And I think uh, what, what we see, and this would in- include some of the smaller kickback schemes on contractors that provide public services like school lunches or this, that, the other thing, is that in order to run a campaign in Brazil, you need to pay the gatekeepers. And these are people that can be, you know, a retired housewife in a neighborhood uh, who allows you to campaign in the neighborhood to mayors, city council people uh, who allow you to campaign in their neck of the woods. And they receive under-the-table payments to open the gates. And I think this would account for the um, high-priced elections and having most, maybe half or more of the election campaign expenditures come out of the slush funds that are that were financed uh, by the Petrobras kickbacks and, and other kickback schemes. I think that's something that political scientists in Brazil and the media need to investigate, is to what degree are these gatekeepers and the illegal payments made to them essential for Brazilian democracy? And how can a political reform be moved through the Brazilian Congress that directly relates to this challenge and brings it to a transparent surface so that all Brazilians can decide for themselves what should be legal, what should be illegal, and that the illegal activities, including the slush funds, including uh, people that receive these under-the-table payments, be prosecuted for that. You're listening to my conversation with Mark Longevin. Coming up, we'll discuss whether President Lula's conviction and imprisonment signals a turning point in Brazilian democracy. I'm Suzette Gorlat, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Grillat, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Former Brazilian President Lula began a 12-year prison sentence for corruption and bribery last Saturday. Many in his left-leaning Workers' Party claim Lula's conviction was meant to prevent him from running and likely winning the 2018 presidential election. Others say the country's democratic institutions are finally starting to function as they should. Today, we hear from Mark Longevin about the ways in which bribery is embedded in Brazilian politics and whether things are, in fact, getting better. One of the things that I keep hearing from Brazilians is that they actually feel like, because there's this perception, right, that Brazil is just embroiled in all of this corruption and that it's somehow really bad and different from other parts of the world, even though we see this sort of activity everywhere. But their response to me is, well, but the system is looking at it. And we are facing, these these people are facing corruption charges and they are being prosecuted and convicted. And that's a good sign. And that's something that would indicate that Brazil is really, you know, growing and developing in their democracy. Would you agree with that? I agree. But uh, I think that it's not black and white. It's a marble, right? Where you have forces fighting corruption and fighting for trans- transparency, but they're doing it in an instrumentalist way to elect a political faction to office or candidate. And then you have others that really do want a popular democracy, uh, including many members and leaders of the Workers' Party, Lula's Party, who want transparency but haven't mustered the courage 
to impose that same standard on their own internal operations and the conduct of their own elected official party members. And I think that's what we're seeing right now in this juncture is a lack of political leadership, a lack of political courage to talk about the facts on the ground and to begin to have a discussion about what kinds of political reforms are necessary to really diminish the kind of corruption. And we're talking about kickback corruption on government contracts to finance political campaigns. There, yes, there's some money that goes to Swiss bank accounts, but most of it is going to finance political campaigns that need to pay gatekeepers in order to win election to office. So you also mentioned the kind of asking the question, what is the economic necessity of this? Why is this economically essential? They're highly paid. They get free airtime, all of these things. But, I mean, they also are experiencing a significant economic crisis in Brazil, too, because of diminished uh, global energy prices, oil prices. And Brazil is obviously a major oil-producing state, an exporting state, that they have these significant economic issues as well. Is, Is that related at all, or is this just like an overall political and economic culture that we're dealing with in Brazil? It's hard not to relate the two because of the concurrent explosion of the corruption scandal in April of 2014 that also came with the widespread recognition that Brazil was diving into a deep economic recession. And so clearly the impeachment of former President Dilma of the Workers' Party in April of 2016 had a lot to do with the state of the economy. I like to remind everybody that in May of 2013, President Dilma's approval ratings were at about 78%, higher than Lula, higher than any Brazilian president elected since since the transition to democracy in 1985. That's an important um, fact to establish on the ground. And then, of course, we have mobilizations in June of 2013 that start the process of what then became the impeachment in April of 2016. And so certainly the the recession, in a sense, inflamed the corruption scandal. I think that if the economy had been booming, a lot of things would have been swept under the rug, uh, as they have been in the past in Brazil. But yes, there are many legitimate forces that are fighting for political accountability and transparency. And their struggle has been long-term and a trend upward. And I would look at those groups, uh, especially the watchdog groups like Contas Abertas and my National Congress, um, who are really trying to render up information for voters and other organizations to understand what's going on in Congress uh, with campaign contributions, with uh, budget expenditures, office expenditures for elected officials and so forth. I think that's a good trend, but right now we're in the muck of a lot of people in an opportunistic way trying to take advantage of the corruption scandals to uh, advance their own candidacies. Well, in in the couple minutes we have left, Mark, I have to always end on a hopeful note. Um, I ask people in Brazil all the time, you know, what is it that you're hopeful about? Where's the the future leadership? Where, you know, are you looking forward to, you know, certain things happening and transpiring? Because to me, you can't really bet against Brazil. I mean, if if anyone ever spends any time there, you know, it's an incredibly large, vibrant, amazing country with these incredibly resilient people that you just had this, you know, just it's just an incredible place. And and so I can't imagine ever kind of betting against Brazil. Um, But what what can they be? What are you kind of hopeful about for Brazil? And what do you see in terms of their future leadership? 
boy, there's a great public opinion study a couple of months ago, not just ask questions about who people intended to vote for, but underlying themes and so forth. And there's a couple of things that came out of the respondents, which were, were, were quite representative. 75% thought that elections were the most important political action for changing the country, moving it in the right direction. Uh, and I think that's optimistic and impressive. Another 75% or so said that they would not cast their ballot for an incumbent. And I think <laughs> democracies must go through these trends in which incumbents fail and other candidates uh, come to the fore. Now, there's a danger to that because there's a lot of irresponsible populists that fill the void. But I think uh, it's an opportunity for Brazil uh, to create new forms of political leadership that are more accountable to the general population and voters. And that opportunity is center stage. And it's just a question, are there enough Brazilians who want to step to the center and run campaigns in a transparent way and try to administer the public sector in a way that, you know, may not satisfy everybody, but is honest and reflects some good governance. That being the case, this is an election year, obviously. This is a presidential election year this fall, uh, 2018. Any predictions? We can't because none of us know what will happen. A lot of it will be determined by the outcome of whether Lula is somehow allowed to run or whether he passes the baton to somebody that can run with it as Jilma did in 2010. Well, we will definitely be talking about that again. And they've got a lot to resolve, clearly. So thank you so much, Mark, for being here and sharing your insights about Brazil. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with political science professor Mark Longevin. He spoke with me about corruption in Brazil ahead of the country's 2018 presidential election. Worldviews is produced in partnership between KGOU and the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Katie Holland prepares our research. Caroline Halter edited this interview and produced the show. For Rebecca Cruz, I'm Suzette Rolotte.